0: A lot of people focus on the hard work, just working hard, getting in the office, making $200. And I think that's really great that people are hardworking, except a lot of those folks don't focus their techniques more, understanding what other people is doing and then using it for their own.
1: Welcome everyone to Tech Sales for Hustlers. Today, in the time of COVID, we have Mr. Queen Nguyen joining us. Queen is currently an enterprise business development SDR at Couchbase. Most recently, of memory blue as an SDR, departing the firm July 2020.
2: Hi, I'm Mark Gagné. And I'm Chris Corcoran, and you're listening to Tech Sales for Hustlers. Tech Sales for Hustlers is a podcast where we catch up with Memory Blue alums and reminisce about their start in high-tech sales with us. Let's go
1: get some, Corcoran. Gagne, you know I'm ready. We, Chris and I are very happy you're here today.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to be here as well. Thanks for having me.
1: We great seeing you. Welcome.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's good to see you guys again. I miss those Stay of the Elephant meetings.
1: You don't miss my trips to Austin?
0: No, not at all, actually. Um, <laughs> no, that was really fun. I'm glad you were there as well. I felt like I had a voice when you were there.
1: Oh, come on. See that? I like it. That's good. Improv. Just, well, I appreciate it. Well, maybe we'll come down. We'll talk about the, the headphone story. That we, the headphone <laughs> story. Yeah. But before we get into it, this is going to be interesting because you, of all the people we've had on the podcast thus far... You're the person who you have the least amount of time from departing Memory Blue to joining us on the podcast. And in that short time, you are a Memory Blue Phenom 2020 finalist.
0: Yeah, I was pretty surprised, too. I didn't actually think about filling the application. I'm like, there's no chance. But you actually messaged me on LinkedIn to just do it. And so I'm like, all right, for Mark's sake, let me just fill this out.
1: Yes, yes. Well, I'm glad you filled it out. And yeah. let's kind of get into it. Yeah, let's do it. So for the folks, and even Chris and I, Chris didn't get to work with you all that much, really. And I got to work with you just a little when i come down to Austin and make sure you were doing your thing on the phones. So let us and the audience kind of get to know you a little bit better. So tell us, let's go back to where you're from,
0: some of those things. Well, sure. I was born in a small village in South Vietnam and grew up there for a bit. I was in second, third grade there. My grandfather was actually in the US Army when the Vietnam War happened. And so a couple of decades after the war, they're like, hey, we're bringing everyone back to the States. And so my mom qualified to go as well. And so I moved to the States when I was around seven, eight, didn't know a single word of English. And so just got into school there, grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida, really beachy.
1: So you came here seven years of age, right? Mm -hmm. Was your grandfather in prison after the Vietnam War?
0: Yeah, yeah. So he was actually locked in the prison in Vietnam for about 10 years. Basically, our whole family were essentially traitors to the country for working with the states. I mean, things have changed dramatically now, but back then it was pretty rough. And my grandfather's in prison for about 10 years. My grandmother had about eight kids, and she's such a strong woman, too. I'm hearing stories. She walked to like 10 miles to the market every morning, try to get some food, sell some fish. When I was growing up, our house was made of leaves. We didn't have floors or anything. So every time it rained, it would just flood the whole house. And I remember going to school like that, where you had to kind of keep up, or it would just, it would just get wet in the flood. And so it was really a small village where I came from.
1: Wow. And that at seven years of age, you show up on the, the Gulf Coast?
0: Yeah, yeah got on the plane. It was pretty emotional. I've never been on a plane. I don't know what planes were. And then I think the first landing was in San Francisco and they had a delay. and We got pushed into a hotel. I remember just sitting there probably like three in the morning, just looking out the window. My parents were sleeping and seeing all these cars and people. And I'm just like, wow, this is like amazing. I've never seen anything like this before. And I really felt like I should be here.
1: You should. And then uh, you ended up in Florida. What was that like showing up? And how much English did you speak?
0: Nada. None I didn't know what buses were. So just got on this weird car with a bunch of random people taken to school. Didn't know a single word of English. No one at school knew Vietnamese either. So couldn't communicate anything. Thankfully, I had a really great ESOL teacher who kind of understood that situation. She has a lot of students who are in a similar situation and didn't really push me to try anything hard. She really just there and just like hey you're not alone and really just worked my way up in understanding basic stuff like i like shapes and stuff. i remember her asking if i ever seen spongebob before she was trying to explain what sponge was and i was like never seen spongebob before and so i remember just going home watching spongebob over and over just trying to understand what they were saying so yeah it was definitely an experience
1: you're a badass man <laughs> so your family so you grew up and what kind of kids you turned into you kind of
0: got into middle school and high school Sure. So I was pretty outgoing when I was in Vietnam, at least in elementary school. And when I got to the States, I was very shy. I mean, it's a culture shock. You can't communicate with anyone. You don't know what people are doing. And so I became pretty shy introvert. And so I still met a lot of people and some friends back then that kind of really helped me get into the culture, try to communicate more. But as I grew up, I think I became a lot more introvert. I like to just do things myself and having experience of traveling from a different country, learning a different language, and just understanding like what my parents went through as well kind of gave me a lot of motivation to just do things on my own.
1: And then that led you, And I mean, in terms of what you're, this is good to talk about it because I think it's super inspiring, especially that you're here. So in terms of yeah. your parents, what your parents got into when they came here, what they had to do working or what?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, they didn't know any English. So it was hard for them too. I didn't know back then. But like looking back now, I'm like, okay, they had to find a job. They had to make sure we have enough money to survive. Because my grandfather basically took us over here. He's like, Alright, i done my job. I'm just gonna move back to Vietnam. So we were kind of just left there and just kind of figure out things ourselves. But you know, luckily, I think my dad was working as a mechanic at a boat shop. And I think he's still working there as like an assistant manager. Now, this guy doesn't know like any English at all. I'm actually surprised of how well he did working with all these Americans that doesn't speak Vietnamese. And then my mom also got really into like the Vietnamese community there and she got a lot of help as well. We moved around a couple of times. I remember when we first moved there, we stayed at someone's house. They were like, hey, we can't pay rent. It's totally fine. I know your situation is totally cool. But we you know, eventually moved out to a different apartment on our own. And then during the recession in 2008, my parents had saved up a lot of money. We actually got a house during that time as well.
1: That's pretty impressive, man. So middle school, high school, you ended up going to the University of South Florida.
0: Yeah, throughout high school, I've actually never been kind of a, a school. Guy, I've always just trying to get Cs and pass kind of deal. I, I didn't really care about school. I, I was in high school at least. I really just cared about volunteering. I love just volunteering at the kids center. I did some the elderly centers as well. I did some thrift stores volunteering. I wasn't doing too great in school either, but I, I was just mainly focused on trying to find a lot of changes that I could do at the time. And when it came to college, I didn't want my parents to pay for anything. So my Was if I didn't get a scholarship, I wasn't going to go to a college. I was just going to do something else or get a job and then work it as I I was in college. So when I was at USF, I was actually thinking we were going to UF. They didn't give me much money so i was like okay i need other options i actually got an interview for a scholarship at usf and it was funny because i remember going to the interview there was a guy at the door to introduce himself he's like hey man congrats for being here it's a pretty hard scholarship so if you don't make it it's totally fine Not at least you got here i'm like well thanks for the motivation and i remember just walking into the room there's probably a, a table of about 10 10 people, the directors and principals and all those big folks at USF. And the first question was, hey, we noticed your scores on SAT and ACT aren't that great. Can you explain that? And I'm like, you know, to be honest, I just suck at like exams. And I didn't really focus on school that much because I volunteered a lot. And I had like a lot of experience to back that up. I was probably in like 10 different clubs at school. I had tons of of volunteering experience. Yeah. And I didn't really think much of it when I got home. About a week later, I got the email like, hey, congrats, you got it. It's essentially just a full ride to USF for, I think, first generation students. And that's really how I, I started at USF as well, in the marketing major.
1: Wow. Okay. Two things. Talk about, you know, you really want your parents to get to college. After this podcast, when you call my house and talk to my four kids about that, <laughs> but, but the situation's not very similar than yours. But why didn't you want your parents to get to college?
0: I thought they were already dealing with their own stuff. I didn't want to take a single penny from my parents. They're always like, hey, do you need money? I'm like, I don't want any money. I was driving my mom's old car and it was breaking down. It was kind of mid-college. It was kind of breaking down. It would die every red light. My mom and my dad were like, hey, we're gonna put in some money, get you a car. I'm like, no, I'm just gonna get a bike and move to New York. I'll just, just bike around and get a job there or something. But no, they actually forced me to, to get a car and not have to bike around. And that's actually one reason why I'm not in New York now and actually in Austin.
1: Okay. All right, all right. So you're at USF, major in marketing. Right. Tell us about what that was like. <laughs>
0: Well, um. Yeah, I, I was in school at least. I, I've noticed I was really good at math, but I did not want to do anything with math. And I suck at English still. So I didn't want to do anything with English. And marketing was kind of the in-between where it was something I wanted to do. It was something I knew I was really bad at was public speaking, just being out there talking to people. And so I just thought, okay, I'm just going to do that. It's, it's, it's hard. I want to do it. It's something I want to improve on. So I, picked, I got into marketing. And at first, it's pretty hard because marketing wasn't really about testing. It was about your final exams were always presentation, speech. It was really hard when I got into it. And I remember freshman year, USF is a really big international school. So one of the thing I did was I would always eat alone and I would walk around the cafeteria and I would look for an international student who was sitting alone. And I would force myself to just walk up to their table and to sit with them. And that was just the hardest thing ever to do. I had to literally shut off my brain, walk up to their table and stand there and freeze. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'm here. I might as well talk to them. And that really got me kind of out of my comfort zone, got practiced me for public speaking, made a lot of friends throughout college, essentially a lot of those international students, they don't know anyone. They just came here. They don't really know a lot of English either. So I kind of had that experience so I can kind of talk to them about it, ask them about their life. And then around the second year, I wanted to kind of do more. So I actually worked as a tour guide at USF, one of their tour guides. And man, that was so hard going from just talking to one person a day to talk to like 50 people, 100 people, 200 people a single day was intense. I remember just standing on my first day, there's a hundred people just staring at me. And I'm like, okay, don't fuck up, don't fuck up. And that was really fun, because after a while I got really used to it, I really enjoyed it. And then one night, I'm always trying to look for things to learn to improve myself. One night, all my coworkers are like, hey, we're going to this improv show, you wanna come? Came to the improv show, saw amazing people doing comedy on the spot, on stage. I just thought that was the hardest thing I could ever do. Like I could never do that. Just be on stage, making people laugh wasn't going to happen. And later I'm like, okay, I I love the comedy show. Let me go to see the club, see more comedy shows that they had. And I remember going to my first improv comedy show on the campus and someone on stage was like, hey, raise your hand if you want to try this. And so I'm like, I'm always down for a challenge. I I need to get out of my comfort zone. If I can do this, I can do anything. (laughs) Raise my hand. First day ever, they made me rap on stage. I think it was about some lemons. And oh man, I felt so bad. I just failed really hard. But I think looking back now, that's really what improv was about. It's about failing and doing it on purpose. If you're going to fail, just fail it real hard. Like own it, essentially. And I came back afterwards a couple of times. Eventually, one of the, the teams, they were like, hey, one of our guys is sick. We're doing a comedy show at this other college. Can you just come with us? I'm like, sure. And so that's kind of how my improv experience kind of started there. And I've been doing improv since then.
1: You said, if I can do this, I can do anything. And why did you say that?
0: because I think anyone can overcome like something physical, obviously, but it's always the mental that's the hardest. And when you look at something, you're like, I can never do that. In a million years, I would never be able to like stand up in front of 50 people and make a speech or get up on stage without any script and make people laugh. When I see that and I get scared, that's when I really want to do it because I know once I get up there and start doing it. And then even if I fail, which is what I learned in improv, it's it's okay. You did it and you can do it again. And once you do it continuously, similar to sales too, you're going to fail a lot. And once you do it continuously, you're going to get better at it. And then it's all about just finding the next hardest thing to do and keep doing that.
1: Yeah. A lot of people would, would be too scared. And I don't know. I wrote that down. If I can do this, I can do anything. And that's probably true. Like I think if a lot of at least in public settings, if people can convince themselves to go up and do improv and have their rap about a lemon, <laughs> if in a group of strangers, there's a lot of shit that they're probably not going to be scared to try and tackle.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still scared thinking about it to this day. But if I didn't do that back then, I probably wouldn't be where I am now.
1: It's and then you were a tour guide at USF for two and a half years.
0: Yeah. I pretty much was a tour guide the whole way through. They actually start paying. When I first started, it was all volunteering. And then they started paying about a year afterwards for anyone that wanted to be paid. And I was like, no, I'm just doing it for fun. I don't want to be restricted to my hours. I just want to do it because I enjoy doing it. So I volunteered as a tour guide there for uh, till I left.
1: How did you treat academics in college versus how you treated them like in high school? <laughs>
0: was it the same or was it different? It was probably worse. Well, the thing was, I thought college was pretty easy and it was slightly boring for me. I didn't really care about the basic stuff. I don't really care about, well, I do like history, but I didn't really care about the general marketing classes. And I always thought if I didn't if I didn't have this scholarship, I would have dropped out already because I do not want to you know spend money on this. But at the same time, I was spending a lot of time in college taking classes that I want to take. I was enrolling to a lot of different classes that weren't marketing, like writing, history, sales digital design some videotography so i was still taking a lot of other classes and i was still acing those but i was getting c's in my marketing classes. because I, I just didn't really care that much i guess what'd you end up
1: doing hey this is what i want to do when i get out of school like would
0: you focus on i guess sure. So I didn't really know what I was going to do in college or even after college. And I was just taking a bunch of random classes. And I'm like, I don't know how useful these would be. And I remember I told you both of you that I had a sales class my uh, last semester. And we had a big presentation at the end. And as everyone's leaving, the professor is telling each student how well they did, what their grade is. And he got to me and he's like, hey, you ever consider getting into sales? I'm thinking, Make some big bucks there. And I remember just telling him, no, that's not me. I, I can never even get into sales. And so I left college and I was working as a graphic designer at a big financial firm down in Florida. Worked there for about eight months, was making really good money. And the only thing I could think of back then was how boring the job was. That's not really something you expect when you do your old college thing. You expect to be a graphic designer and then you're in an actual company and you're like, it's so boring. I wanna do something else. And so I I didn't know what I wanted to do back then. I just knew I I wanted to get out and do something else. And so one of the things I noticed that the company did was they sold websites for around $10,000 a website. And I figured, well, I can probably just make the whole website myself find my own people to sell it to and then you know i can do that for a bit so ended up ending my job there and then i was making just websites on the side with local small um, businesses in tampa i mean of course they're not going to be able to afford ten thousand dollar website so I was charging i was charging people like five hundred bucks a thousand dollars per website i could make them in like a day or so so i was doing that for a while and i was making enough money to kind of survive here and there and i, I was still not sure about my future. I didn't know what to do. I did a couple interviews at large companies and just, I just didn't get them and just didn't know what to do by the end of that year. And so I had a friend, a family friend that was in Europe at the time. And he said, he messaged me. He's like, hey, why don't you just like move to Europe and experience what people experience here and then just figure it out from there. And at the time, I didn't really have a lot of money. I probably had about $600. And so I bought a, a one-way ticket. I decided, Screw it! I'm just gonna do it. Bought a one-way ticket to London because I couldn't afford the rest. Flew to London, got a warning stamp on my passport because you know I didn't have any money, didn't have a job, didn't have any other flight plans. I probably had six hundred, seven hundred dollars. <laughs> 500 that went to the plane ticket and so I was couch serving for a bit I was living it with a rock band for about a month just following them to different bars doing shows and then I was also doing improv in London as well and met a lot of people that way eventually I was doing websites on the side just selling websites to local businesses I was making a couple hundred dollars here and there and then I bought a plane ticket and flew to Berlin where I shadowed my friend who's a sales manager at the time and kind of understand his think thinking process he was actually really successful successful at the time. He started a company before he sold it for a couple million dollars. And he was working as a sales manager to just understand sales, because he thought it was kind of the most important part of the company. And so I thought that was really interesting. I learned a lot of entrepreneurship from him. I learned a lot of coding when I was there as well. And I found that sales was really interesting from what I saw. But after that, I traveled around Europe for a bit. I was in Switzerland, and then I finally flew to Spain, where I did kind of a pilgrimage. I walked, there was a big trail. I walked from Northern Spain down to Portugal. Took a couple of days, but it it really cleared my mind. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to get out of Tampa. That was one big thing I wanted to do. Because I think in Tampa, the mentality that I felt there was just work at some normal corporate job, go to the beach, and just enjoy your life. You know, Just keep doing that every single day. And I I didn't want that. I want change. I want people that are surrounding me or people that wants to be successful, start their own company. The idea of startups was really exciting as well. So after the whole pilgrimage, I essentially was in Spain for a bit and I decided to just fly back. I was back in St. Petersburg, packed up all my clothes, took my car and uh, just drove to, I was actually in Houston, but I was looking to, to live in Austin.
2: Amazing. What a story. And so what happened when you got to
0: Houston? Well, I had a few job interviews that I had set up before I go, just to kind of prep myself. ended up not getting any of it. And so I was just stuck in Houston living on someone's couch for a good month. And every day I would just apply for jobs. That's all I did. Wait, hold on a second. Um, So
2: how do you find all these people that let you sleep on their couch?
0: I think I'm just, I guess friendly. I just had really great friends, obviously, that really sheltered me. They're like, hey, you don't have to pay for rent or anything. Don't worry about it. Just get a job and figure it out. So luckily I had really great friends that supported my career choice and what I was doing and really trusted me to get a job and get out of there, have place, obviously. Um, Amazing. Amazing.
2: So you're in Houston, you're staying on a friend's couch, you're looking for jobs, you're getting turned down for jobs. Take us from there.
0: Sure, sure. So I was in Houston for a month and I, I was really sweating because I was like, I need to get out of this person's place. I need to get a job, get, get out of here. And I knew I didn't want to be in, in Houston. I wanted to be in Austin. So I was driving back and forth every single day from Houston to Austin and back. I remember doing a couple interviews, driving back, didn't get it. Eventually I saw Memory Blue. I saw it was this big sales company that really taught you the whole sales cycle, the whole process and everything. It's really great for people that never had sales experience before. So I thought, okay, let me apply for this one. And I actually remember calling my uh, friend in Europe and say, Hey, I found this really cool company. Now, what do you think about it? Yeah, that looks really uh, awesome. Like what do you want to do? And just kind of learn sales a bit, especially in, you, you and your experience when you don't really have a lot of sales experience. So I applied, did drove to Austin, did an interview with my previous manager, her name. Taylor, um, Ritchie. Taylor Ritchie, yes. Ritchie. Yeah, T. Rich. Yeah, did an interview with her. It went pretty good. Drove back to Houston, got called up the next day, drove back to Houston, did another interview with Nimit, and then I got the job as I was leaving the office. I think it was Abby that called me.
2: Abby Bullwindham. <laughs> Abby yep. Dubs. So then did you move from, you obviously had to move from Houston to Austin.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that was another big part of my life as well, because I didn't have any money back then when I got the job at memory Blue. So I ended up, I had maybe 200 bucks or something in my name. I had probably $3,000 in debt and I ended up living at different Airbnbs for about $30 a night. My girlfriend was there, came to visit me at the time as well. And we were just sleeping in my car, some days at the park, some construction sites, and I remember driving her to the airport to so she you know fly back. And it was about five in the morning. I had to work the next day at Memory Blue, and I would just drive to the Memory Blue office and sleep in the parking lot because I didn't really have a place to go. And so it, it was really tough at the time. Luckily, I got I eventually got paid and found my apartment.
2: Wow! So you spent some time living at Casa de Mi Honda.
0: yeah yeah it's definitely an experience
2: unbelievable so how long were you living out of your car
0: I mean, not long. I was only in Austin for a week before working at Memory Blue, but I was sleeping in different Airbnbs, really cheap ones, and then just sleeping in my car occasionally when I, I didn't have money to, to stay somewhere. Now, I remember the first week at Memory Blue was so stressful for me because as I'm dialing, I'm stressing out on the back of my mind because I'm like, I don't have a place to stay tonight. I don't really have a place to sleep. I remember telling Taylor, I'm like, Taylor, I really need to like go and figure out my living situation because I don't have a place to sleep tonight. So it was definitely a rough situation.
2: Well, obviously you got through it. So what did you end up finding?
0: Well, I eventually got paid by Memory Blue, obviously. And I got a really nice apartment, the place I'm living right now, actually. And at the time, I didn't really care about saving money. I just wanted to know sales, understand sales. I didn't need need to save money for anything. I wasn't looking for like long-term plans at the time. I'm like, okay, I'm in Austin. I got a job. I got a place. I just got like the most expensive place they had. So I'm like, I don't need to save any of this money. Probably a bad mistake looking back now. But yeah, then everything kind of turned out really well. Once I had a place to stay, I was uh, working at Memory Blue then for you know two weeks now in the job and everything was going pretty good.
2: Talk to us a little bit about what it was like this first couple of weeks. And if you could go back and give yourself advice before you started, what advice would you give yourself?
0: Sure. I mean, first few weeks was so hard. It was the, one of the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I did not expect that at all. If I was to go back and tell myself, I would probably just tell myself it's gonna be hard. That's not something I expect. I was reading a lot of sales books. I was listening to podcasts before working at Memory Blue. And I'm like, okay, I got this. I'm gonna be the best salesman that I'll ever hire. And it's gonna be awesome. You know, not the case at all. I got in there and it was so hard. It's not so much about like the strategy or, or how hard I was working. It's about like the mentality of picking up the phone and talking to someone that was really tough. And I mean, that's one reason I got into sales as well, because I thought that's not something I can do. And that's why I did it. And I remember the first week I was just shaking you know, every call. Before I recall, I would ask Jackson Hawkins. You know, it was also like Kaylee that was there. I was just like, hey, how do you get over this fear of picking up the phone, talking to someone, they're like, but the, really the universal answer I got was you don't, you just get used to it the more you do it. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to do it. You know, No complaints anymore. So one thing I started doing early my first month of there, I would just get in the office super early. I usually get there either first or second before Jackson. And I had a key open the office, get in there and I would make about 30 dials so about 7 a.m central so about 8 a.m in eastern which is my territory just make about 30 dials in the morning before i could use any services can't pee or anything until i make that 30 dials did 30 dials and then as everyone's shuffling in and starting their first blitz i would be at my 50 dials going to 80 dials and i always try to complete at least 80 dials before lunch every day
2: and so why did you do that? Yesterday, you were talking about, hey, I, I had to get in there. I had to dial early. Why'd you do
0: that? Yeah, I was just a lot more motivated in the morning. I would just kind of shake myself up. I knew that if I'm scared at something, I should just do it. And so getting up early in the morning, going to the office early when was, it's was all quiet, not a lot of people in there, not a lot of people chatting with me. I can really get my work going. I can start dialing, feeling really refreshed. And so I was trying to get as many dials as possible in the morning so that I can kind of evaluate that later as well uh, throughout the day.
3: For almost two decades, Memory Blue has helped high-tech firms tackle their sales development challenges and carve out bigger market share in their space. Building and executing a carefully designed multi-touch cadence that generates a flow of sales qualified leads is the hallmark of our business. Our flexible solutions and talented professionals produce real results that clients can bank on. The end goal of our outreach is scheduling a qualified meeting so you can provide a comprehensive discovery call and bring the sale to a close. This carefully crafted process produces new business opportunities that have converted into over $1 million in closed deals. Hundreds of high-tech companies have trusted Memory Blue to help them grow, penetrate new markets, and test the viability of a new product. If you're interested in learning more about Memory Blue's full sales development services, head to memoryblue.com sales.
2: When it comes to prospecting, I always like to say that inertia is either your best friend or your worst enemy. So if you go and start early and you get built up to momentum and you got yours in the rhythm and you're off, but if you don't do that, then it could be 10, 11 lunchtime and you haven't called anybody and that phone weighs a hundred pounds, right?
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if I don't call in the morning, then I would not be able to call in the afternoon. That's, that, that was just my case. Yeah. I could not call anybody in the afternoon if I didn't do it in the morning.
1: We can all learn something from that. You would come in, you wouldn't do anything else until you made those dials.
0: Yeah. That's and that helped really me tremendously special. in terms of anxiety, because by the time it's noon, my brain starts kicking up. It's like, oh, I already made most of my calls. I talked to like 10 people already. And so that made me feel a lot better. I'm like, okay, I can't do this. And that's kind of how I, I rolled at um, Memory Blue.
2: So Hui, other than yourself, who is the strongest SDR that you worked with, in your opinion?
0: It was definitely Jackson Hawkins. When I was there, we were on the same campaign and I kind of jumped in. It was Acme ticketing. And so when I got there, I jumped on the campaign and he's been on it for 6 months or so. And he's just- killing it. There were probably six of us in that campaign. I didn't have any sales experience. And so I was mainly looking at Jackson and we had lunch. I was talking about like how he got into a sales career, asking him any advice and stuff. But really kind of taking a lot of advice from him, listening to his calls, what he's saying on the phone, that really helped me as well. Another person was Kemi, who's your recruiter now. And she was there a month before me. And I'm like Kemi, you're amazing on the phone. Like, whenever I listen to her calls, the prospects are laughing. They're like her best friends. She's having a good time on the phone. She's like, Yeah, I just started here like a month. Don't really know what I'm doing yet. And I'm like, Kemi, you're amazing at this. So, yeah, those are kind of the two people I, I look to, I guess, the most when I was there.
2: Queen, so what did you do that kind of other folks didn't do to really help you kind of separate yourself? as a top
0: performer? Sure, one of the things I noticed was that a lot of people get into sales thinking that if they just work hard, it'll pay out. And that's not really always the case. I mean, hard work is something you need, but it's also about like your technique, or how are you improving it? If you're making 100, 200 calls a day and you're just the worst person talking to the prospect, you're not gonna book anything. I think what I did was, I communicated a lot with the peers around me and understanding what works and just being able to say, hey, I suck at this. Can I like understand what you're doing? to book your meetings and even now at Couchbase we get an email every time someone books a meeting I always read those emails kind of understanding what they just did how they talked to that person what techniques they use and just listening to their calls as well to kind of improve mine and so one thing I did at Memory Blue was always improving my script my calls um, always listening to what everyone else is saying seeing what works it doesn't matter if the person's been there for a year before me or just started at Memory Blue I always look to, you know, get advice from everyone and improve myself there.
2: And so what would be your signature move? What did you do better than others that people would say, whee, man, you got to break it down for me. Teach me that move.
0: Sure. I mean, I've had a lot of, I guess, life experience that enabled me to kind of speak to people in a different way that aren't sales. Uh, How I looked at sales is I want to first talk to them and then second sell to them. And so when I'm talking to the phone, my goal has never been to like, all right, let's get a meeting. It's always been, I want to understand this person first. And growing up an introvert and being able to communicate people on that kind of one-on-one side and then also having improv experience where I'm making mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes. And so when I first got into acne ticketing, I'm talking to a lot of elderlies typically at museums, and it's always going to start with just being really nice asking about their day, the weather, their coworkers, they love to talk. And, you know, that's how I kind of began my techniques to just communicate first build my skill up, understand the other person, and then pitch it, or at least understand that problem before pitching it.
2: Very good. And so what ended up happening with Acme? How long were you at Memory Blue and kind of you ultimately got scooped up by your client? So talk to me what happened there
0: sure so my experience memory blue i actually started with dial note where it was a software i was selling to sales managers and that was really hard when just starting at memory blue to start selling to sales managers i did that for about a month or two and then i switched over to acme and i was on acme for about i think seven months for quite a while and jackson was actually i think he became manager and he suggested taylor and he was like hey taylor get this guy off of Acme, put him on something else.
1: Well, yeah. Why did he say that? Because I want to talk about a little story you told yesterday, but I remember this. I'd come down to the Austin office and I'd be like, what's up with these numbers from Acme? Right? Like, we got these, all these smart people on there. Why don't we book more meetings? And people would say, well, listen, we only has like 40 accounts. And he only has like two people, three people, tops, meets a county. He has a list of a hundred names. And I was like, what are you talking about? But you guys were little snipers. Tell us about how prepared you were when you would call these museums and talk to these stakeholders there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought that was probably one of the hardest campaign I have did at Memory Blue because it wasn't about the calling or talking to the prospects. It was about how many prospects we had. I think I had Pennsylvania and there are only so many museums in Pennsylvania. After you work six months in Pennsylvania, you're you're gonna start running out. You're talking to trade shows now, some mom and pop museums. And I remember just having a list of 100 people I would go day and my conversion rate at the time was just insane if they pick up the phone i had about 80 to 90 percent chance of booking that meeting because i did so much research in these people understanding what time they even open what their ticketing price was when they have the most volume of people coming in if they had student tickets if they don't, if they sell tickets online, who their competing museums are, just understanding all that. And when I pick up the phone, I'm talking to someone, I already know exactly what problems they're experiencing. I know how their museum operates. And so once they pick up, it was really easy for me to uh, you know, book a meeting with them.
1: I got to tell you, I owe you and all the Acme people an apology because I didn't really fully realize this until we had our prep call. I was like, man. I probably should have bought in a little bit more what they're going on with acne Acme based on what I'm hearing. I don't know. That was like last summer probably. It was over a year ago. So my bad, but I just <laughs> got to make sure we're doing our job.
0: <laughs> yeah, no worries. I mean, everyone, I think everyone that came out of Acme became like killers, not literally, but you know, like Jackson, Kemi, they came out and they're amazing at what they're doing.
1: Yeah, You had an interesting experience working on Squelch too. What was that like?
0: Sure. So Jackson got me off of Acme because he's like, yeah, I don't want anyone drowning in that campaign. You need Get these, get we out of there. So I got on Squatch, and at the time, Squatch wasn't doing too hot. I got on as part of a new team. I mean, it was me and three other folks, uh, and we started booking meetings right away. I mean, we were booking a lot more meetings than they, they had before, and, and things were going pretty good. Or I thought, it was pretty good. I was actually hitting quota or at least close to it. And I felt a lot better than I, when I was on Acme. Unfortunately, they liquidated. It wasn't any, really any of our faults. The investors pulled out and the company basically vanished.
2: Tell us about how you found out about that and what you said.
0: <laughs> yeah. So no one knew. My sales rep texted me on a Friday night. I was just hanging out with some friends and he says, hey, we liquidated. And I told him, hey that's great congrats because i always thought they wanted to sell the company (laughs) um like hey congrats that's great we did it and
2: (laughs) (laughs) we did it oh man
0: (laughs) and he replies back you know the bad kind of liquidation we're all fired (laughs) and i'm like oh I'm sorry. That sucks. And so I call up Taylor Richie. I'm like Taylor, like Squatch liquidated. We're gone. They're gone. And she's like, what? Like they didn't tell me anything. And I'm like, yeah. They just texted me and say they liquidated. So I came in the office Monday thinking I'm fired. Like I'm I'm gone. My client's gone. I'm out of here. But you know, luckily we were all moved to a far site afterwards, and that was a cybersecurity client.
1: And eventually you mosey your way over in the couch space. But actually, yeah. you take that back. You didn't mosey your way over there. We had finally <laughs> figured out how to properly incentivize folks to, who've earned the right to work on um certain can camp- I guess that campaign in particular, because that campaign is very unique to the history of the company. So, yeah. so tell us about how that went down. How you think that evolved and what you thought about it initially and where you were <laughs> on that.
0: Sure. So when I was on Farsight, it was still pretty good. I was with uh, Sam burkhalter one of my really close friends now. And I'm really close to him now. And when we worked on it together, we were both doing really good on Farsight. They weren't doing too hot before, similar to Squelch. And once we got on it, we would start booking meetings for them. And <laughs> I remember talking to Sam, and I'm like, dude, you're like always killing it here. Like, how are you doing it? And he's like, to be honest, the first week working here, I literally cried every day before going to work because it was so hard. <laughs> And I'm like, thank you. Like, that's exactly how I experienced it. And so having him working with me on Farsight was really kind of relieving. Having someone with similar experience, he was in med school before going to sales too. So it was really uplifting. But at the same time, this is, my fourth client so far at, or third client so far at Memory Blue. I've been here for almost a year and a half. Everything's kind of to seem kind of similar at this point, all the calls, all the dialogues. And so I remember getting pulled into an office by Jackson. He's like, I, I never talk about your future. What do you think of, of doing? Where do you think you're going? I remember just telling him, Yeah, I think sales is not for me. I think I'm, I'm good. I think I'm done for now. I might just go do marketing or something. And he's like, Wait, okay, hold on. I'm thinking of you putting you on face. What do you think about it? It's going to be awesome. And I told him, no, nah, I, th- I think I'm good. I-, I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to get into Couchbase a month and then quit or something. And yeah, I'm pretty sure they're a great client. I just don't want to disappoint them. And he's like, all right, just give it two weeks. If you don't like it, you can quit if you want. All right. Just give it two weeks for my sake. And so I'm like, all right, fine, Jackson. now. I'll give it two weeks. And then if I don't like it, I'm out of here. Gave it about three days i went to jackson's like jackson i'm staying here this is amazing you're a really great product really great company they have an amazing sdr team they have really good sdr team manager as well and i just really enjoyed learning about the product the people that worked behind it and it's been there since then
1: you had a bunch of memory blue alums who work there right
0: yeah yeah a majority i'd say of the sales team there were memory blue
1: How much better do you think you were the first day you started on Couchbase versus the first day you started at
0: Memory Blue? Oh, much better. I remember the first day on Couchbase was just so easy. I remember talking to the sales director at Couchbase and just telling him, hey, this is the easiest thing I've ever sold. First day at Memory Blue, I just had no idea of anything. I was scared. First day of Couchbase, I was so confident that this was going to be awesome and it was just going to be really easy. And really, that's still the case.
1: Yeah, good. You still work there now, so you definitely yeah, I mean it's still
0: be the case.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what
0: you're doing for i Sure. So I'm still in the SDR role. I just left Memory Blue three four months ago. And when I, I first started, I had really small territory, kind of the southwest area. And my first quarter, I was still at Memory Blue back then, I went really well i was tied for the most opportunities tied with one of their best SDRs. been there for two years for the most opportunities which are means that sales rep determined have potential to sell i helped them closed their first deal of the year for about a quarter of a million dollars and i'm just working this guy at like 7 p.m calling him calling my sales reps making sure everything works and they ended up selling and so since then i've been moved around a couple territories to kind of uplift that territory and i've been doing pretty good so far
2: so Hui, what made Couchbase that much easier, that much better compared to the other campaigns that you were on before you moved over to Couchbase?
0: Sure. Well, one thing is Couchbase, I think it has a really good product that is really where the future is. And a lot of companies recognize that too. Like a lot of companies now, like Apple uses Couchbase, the airlines, American Express, a lot of these giants are, are using Couchbase already because they see the potential in it. And that's why I saw when I first started there as well. And then secondly, I've had so much experience from working different clients at memory blue working from talking to sales managers, talking to elderly at museums, talking to cybersecurity folks. Understanding these different personas, understanding what they want, really helped me when I got on Couchbase. Because in Couchbase, we're talking to all kinds of people, your level, VP level, all the way down to just regular software engineers that just got on. of call. So just being able to understand all those personas, being able to communicate what they want to hear, has really helped me which is using that experience from memory blue. So it sounds like a,
2: it's a combination one of having a great solution that's being adopted in the marketplace and then number two just the experience that you had of talking to all these different personas so that you feel comfortable talking to really anybody and that's kind of helped you crush it for Couchbase.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think another side thing is also the people. I had a really great SDR manager, Stephen LeBay. Uh, I think he was actually at uh, Memory Blue too. Who was? Mr. LeBay? Mr. LeBay, amazing manager. I go to him for anything. And that was kind of a similar situation at Memory Blue too, where one thing that kept me going the most at Memory Blue was the people around me. Uh, That's one thing I did not expect when I was planning to get in sales was how much the people around you really affects you. You're getting in the office and everyone's just talking, hanging out. you not going to have the motivation to call. But when I get, I'm in the office, I see people on the phone hitting the dials. It gives me a lot more motivation. And also listening to people with similar you know, issues or how they felt when they first got in the sales really helped me kind of stay in the game and, and being motivated.
2: I think most people underestimate that.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I think a lot of people get into sales thinking they're just going to do it themselves and make some money and be the best. But it's really a lot about the people around you as well.
1: You're the fire starter of the office, man. Back when I was working, if I'd come in, you were already on the phones. Person the phones up and like this is great. I got to do what this guy's doing.
0: Reality, I'm super nervous. I'm just trying to get as much calls in as possible so that that nervousness goes away.
1: Every podcast we have, and it's same with Chris and I when we started. When I started, I used to pray, to "Dear God, that the prospect would pick up. The prospect <laughs> to come Prospect would pick up." And I'd hang the phone up on the prospect before even a word was said. It's scary as shit. People who say they're not scared or, I don't know, they're a little off the rocker a little. They might be a little crazy or or they haven't done it before, truly.
2: So, Mark, would you count that as a CWP? I
1: would not. (laughs) I would not. Uh. There needs to be something coming out of your mouth. (laughs) If you don't say anything, there's no CWP. Okay. All right. It's good to hear because Austin was our first office outside of Memory Blue corporate. And we were always a little nervous about what the culture was going to be like when we opened it because you're not there. And Emmett did a good job of opening it and then finding folks like Jackson and T. Rich. Jackson's running the office now. And I don't think it's any coincidence that you told me that somebody who, and we all have these crises of confidence in the SGR role, you told me Jackson was a guy who saved you a few times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When I was at memory, I wanted to quit a lot of times. And one person I leaned on a lot was Jackson, just like looking at him, looking at him work and him telling me not to give up a couple of times was really helpful. And even when T-Witch was there, I would always go to Jackson for help as well. And when he was a manager, I was like, yeah, for sure. We didn't have to guess.
1: So let's talk about this. So what does the future hold for you? Like, where do you think you want to go with this?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So one of my plan is I don't actually plan to be in sales for that long. I actually plan to be in marketing. And that was really one of my goal before even sales before memory blue was always to be in marketing I got into sales because that's one of the skills I want to learn if I'm gonna ever have my own company I need to learn like the lowest level which is sales selling or also the most important level and so I feel like now I kind of had some of that experience I wanted to get back to what I was mainly focused on which is marketing and especially at couch base I, I feel like I could you know do the most good because when I'm in sales I'm really just it uh, feels like I'm helping myself. Whereas when I'm you know, in marketing, I can actually help the whole team. And having that experience with sales already, understanding what the prospects wants to hear, what they want to see in the email, I think it's gonna really help the marketing team as well.
2: So Hui, what's more intimidating? prospecting or improv?
0: (laughs) If you ever try improv and for anyone that listens to this, yeah, there are a lot of comedy shows where a lot of nights they'll just bring out a hat. And if you want to do it, just put your name in there and get up on stage. And then you'll realize how really easy it is. I think because improv is not about booking meetings, not about getting sales or anything. It's about just making mistakes and owning it. And you know, that's so much easier. Than when I'm on a call, because on the call, I I try to be as sharp as possible, as precise as possible, knowing every single thing about the person. But in improv, it's really freeing. And that's one of the things I did, uh, why I stuck with improv is when I'm on stage, I really felt like I was myself. I didn't have to pretend to be someone else. I didn't have to be perfect. And that really translates to my life now, where I'm a little less nervous about failing.
2: That's great. And so how do you keep your sales skills sharp?
0: Sure. I mentioned this earlier too. I never stop learning. And one of the easiest way to learn is from the people around you. Always ask, how do they book that meeting? Every time someone books a meeting at Memory Blue, I remember I would just always ask, hey, what, what do you say? What the person say? How did you book that meeting? Even now at Couchface, I always read all the meeting notes, everyone's meeting notes, understanding exactly how they got it, what techniques they used. And then also, since we're in COVID now and everyone's working from home, I spend my morning just chatting with my coworkers, asking them what techniques they use, what's working, understanding how they book meetings, And that has really helped improve my skills and doing what works constantly without just focusing on myself and and making dials.
1: You mentioned mistakes. What are mistakes around improv and being on the phones? But since you've been working at Memory Blue and now at Couchbase, what are some mistakes you think you've seen people make, maybe some of your contemporaries? that um, you're like, oh, I don't know about that. Or maybe something, because this is good advice for people who are listening.
0: Sure. And I think, again, a lot of people focus on the hard work, just working hard, getting in the office, making $200. And I think that's really great that people are hardworking, except a lot of those folks don't focus their techniques more. Understanding what other people is doing and then using it for their own. I worked on days where I'm making $30, I'm booking two meetings, and then someone next to me is making $150 and can't book a single meeting. And I'm like, okay, let's stop the hard work for a bit and let's focus on what you're doing, how you can best translate your leads, your process, how you're you're building your list to using your calls more effectively. And so I think that's one tip I would give to a lot of people that are getting into sales now.
1: That's good. You've got an inspiring and an amazing personal journey. And I, I think it's totally wild that you ended up working for us. And I'm thankful that you are.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And, and the opportunity, I would not be anywhere near where I am. I probably quit sales a month after working at a different company. So I'm glad I stuck it through. I think Memory Blue gave me so much memory, so many friends I'm still hanging out with now and really motivated me to be the best I can and just doing things that are hard or scares me.
1: I mean, I'll tell you, you thank the company and the people you work with, but you probably were the same person for them. Like you talked about how Sam and Jack's more important to you. I'm sure there are people you may or may not be mentioning, love other people on this podcast. We're going to talk about how you are a great, solid co-worker friend confidant for them so so thanks for doing that yeah yeah of course and also i think the fact that you kind of have these uh, your eyes on this marketing side of the house and you think you can help the organization from your experience as an SGR is a great way to kind of help the company and that's a great path for people who come to memory blue not everybody needs to go into sales a lot of people will a lot of people do and that's how we kind of orient things but there's so much great experience you're going to take and pass on
0: yeah yeah i think ultimately I, i want to do what's fun for me what I think I need the experience of. Uh, I do feel like I've been in sales for almost two years now and I've kind of got the gist of it. I've been on several clients, talked to multiple kind of prospects. My journey, it's always about more so learning than gaining. So I don't know much about marketing, even though I'm a marketing major. So that's one thing I I wanted to focus on.
2: Well, it's going to be fun to watch that journey continue. Mark and I are going to have a ringside seat
0: yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for joining us. Lee. We appreciate it, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mark and Chris.
1: Yeah, thanks, sweet. Great catching up with you.
0: Appreciate it. Yeah, hopefully I'll see you guys soon as well.
1: I'll, we'll track you down. We're down there next. Definitely.
0: <laughs> yeah, I might have my own company by then. So. Well, you hey, go.
1: Then you can hire us to do some more SDR work for you.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I might not be able to afford you guys. But, oh, come uh, on, man. <laughs> All right. Take it easy, Huey. Thanks, Sweet. Right, I appreciate it. Yep. See Bye.
3: you. The pain of finding and hiring strong sales professionals is a critical challenge that is widespread and getting worse. The Memory Blue Direct Hire Service specializes in filling sales development roles within the high-tech space. And with a one-year performance guarantee and 0% interest financing, you can feel secure in your selection process when you use Memory Blue Direct Hire. As a company, we hire close to 300 SDRs annually across our five office locations. That's nearly an SDR per day all year long. Finding, hiring, and developing sales talent is the core strength of our business. Now we're letting the public tap into the resources of our world-class talent team, specifically trained to high potential SDRs in order to close this gap. For more information on this service, check out memoryblue.com slash direct. Thanks for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beat.